0: We're going to see what I'll call five strengths and one weakness of Solomon. Not that he may have had other weaknesses, but five strengths and one weakness is kind of the title of our our time tonight here. And so let's read verses 14 of chapter 10, and we'll go into verse 2. Let's go into verse 2 of chapter 11, okay? First of all, chapter 10, 1 Kings, chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred, three score and six talents of gold. Beside that he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went to one target. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pound of gold went to one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round behind. And there were stays on either side the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold none were of silver it was nothing accounted of in the days of solomon for the king had a sea of navy pardon me the king had a sea had at sea a navy of tarsus with the navy of hiram once in 3 years came the navy of tarsus bringing gold and silver ivory and apes and peacocks So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and garments, and armor, and spices, and horses, and mules, a rate year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots, and with the king at Jerusalem. And he made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt, and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price, and a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150, and so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means. Chapter 11, verse 1, but King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, "'You shall not go in to them.'" neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. There's a passage that, as I look at kind of the big picture, it reminds me of just things that seem big and strong that end up having something hidden that become its collapse. You know, we saw Twin Towers collapse. They got an obvious hit with two planes and the intense heat of the the jet fuel compromised the internal uh, st- integrity of the structure, and they collapsed. Um, uh, the Titanic hits an iceberg, you know, and it ruptures the one of the part of the the ship and takes on water, and then tilts and and it submerges. Uh, I read about I don't know if it was like the Queen Mary or one of these ships. I can't remember which one it was. Isn't the is the Queen Mary in which one is in the in in California, Long Beach—is Beach, that the Queen Mary over there? I don't know if it was that one or it was one of these ships that has these big old stacks, you know, for the the steam or the exhaust or whatever—huge stacks. And I read that um, when they went to, they were going to strip the paint off of them, and uh, you know, we're going to all right, we're going to finally do a strip. And this was after years of this—I think it was that one—being in the dock. And uh, they would always paint it red again, then paint it red again, then paint it red again, etc, cetera. Well, after a while, the, the gist of the story was that they were just going to strip all the paint off and just redo it from, from the metal up. And when they went to strip the paint, there was nothing left. It was just crumbled because uh, nearly nothing left because it had begun to rust so much over however many years, they kept painting over the rust. Rust, keep painting over it. Just keep painting over it and painting. and so oh, it looks red, looks fine, and the paint probably added to some of the strength to it, which is you know, which means there was a lot of paint because that's not the intention of paint. But once they decided to strip and see what's really there, it just collapses. Something that was big and seemed strong, and so Solomon basically here in this story has some rust building up, and and he, it's of his choosing. <laughs> And so he ends, the end, his last chapter is just not pretty. And uh, I hope to get into another, one more message it looks like here, because God responded to this sin by sending him certain adversaries uh, to discipline him, in, I suppose, in a way. But let's look at it this way. Let's look at the scripture, as at this passage about Solomon. We see in Solomon five strengths, and one weakness, and there'll be kind of just a central truth that we'll end with. Okay, this is what we see as we go into the text. Five strengths. Look at we're going to look at his five strengths. Here's the first one. His first strength is <laughs> his mass of wealth. His mass of wealth. That, that's a that's a strength in in a way. A lot of wealth. It's I mean, you know, we're as Christians we see things very we see things spiritually. and that we know true strength is beyond that. But as far as earthly maneuvering and all that, it's strength, right? It's a strength. He, I mean, the Bible's telling us. Look at what it says, verses 14 to 17. This guy was incredibly wealthy. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 600, three score, and six talents of gold. 666 talents, I'm not superstitious about it in this passage, I just don't like it in the Revelation passage, I get it there. I don't think that there's some kind of super spiritual thing you need to look at that, just take it plainly. It was 603 score 6 talents of gold, that amounts to, if you were to do kind of the low end of what a talent is, because they don't know if a... I'm looking at everybody's Bible dictionary. They don't know if it's from 70 pounds to 125 pounds for one talent. So I took it for about 75 pounds. Okay? And if you do it about 75 pounds, this is basically 50,000 pounds of gold in one year. In one year. Pretty good. Beside. Look what it says, verse 15. Beside that he had of the merchant men. You know... Coming on the ships and the traffic of the spice merchants and all the all the I don't I mean all that other stuff, and he had a lot of money 50, 50 pounds was in the billions I didn't get the exact one or two billion something like that, um, but it's a lot when you when you break that down it's a lot of money. Let me tell you about some of the wealthiest men in the world that we know of up to this point in time. Um, Can anybody name, maybe you could, I got a list of the top 10 according to this one website. Anybody know some of the wealthiest men ever? What's that? Andrew Carnegie, the Scot. Yeah. Andrew Carnegie, he's on here as number four. And they could debate some of this at three. This is, again, bringing it up to 2018 economy. $310 billion. He lived from 1835. To nineteen nineteen, what was he? What was his industry again? Steel, yeah. steel. Yep. And I could, we could read stuff about him. Another guy, what? Another person, John, J. P. Morgan. JP Morgan. Yeah, J. P. Morgan was wealthy. I actually don't see him on here, and uh, we can we can check that out later. Maybe he's number eleven. But yes, he was he was powerful too. What's that? I have not heard of him. I he. When did he live? Oh no. All right. Here's it How about another one? Anybody else? Rockefeller. Rockefeller. I kind of like this guy. Senior, John D. Rockefeller Senior is actually number two on this list. He lived from 1839 to 1937. A really neat story of how he got wealthy on Standard Oil, and he was a he was a feisty too. I mean, he was a feisty guy. He was professing, a professing Christian, went to a Baptist church, apparently tied. I don't know, he must have tied to multiple churches because it would have been kind of obvious where he was tithing to uh, after a while. Uh, but he was, I, I, I'm impressed on how he, he retired, like his last 40 years were in retirement. And so he spent a lot of time on, um, you know, on giving for benevolent causes and things like that, philanthropy. And an amazing man right there, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, then there's some other names we might not recognize. Mansa Musa I. I believe this was an African king. Amazing story about him. He was incredibly wealthy. Some have wondered if he was even more wealthy than what they say here, $400 billion. Um, I, I don't know if I said John D. Rockefeller, six, $663.4 billion. Of, apparently his wealth would be up to this point. But they say here King Solomon is $2.1 trillion, they estimate he would have been worth in today's standards. $2.1 trillion, which, is, what is that? That's like three times, more than three times further than second place. So I'm thinking he's nobody's going to beat him. I'm thinking. Because the economy, you know, the price of the dollars is going to keep going up, and that gap of who can give you second place is just going to, I think, stay a big gap. Anyways, Solomon, of course, reigned for 40 years. He received... a. Uh, Many tons of gold. So here it is. He, he, he's wealthy. That's the strength of Solomon. He's, his massive wealth. All right. Um, and it, it, he, made, he, he makes shields out of gold. They have, they have like targets. It said made gold targets. That may have been like a full body shield. And then it says they made, verse 17, shields of beaten gold. That was probably a smaller one. I mean, he had, let's, you know what? Let's make some of our military weapons out of gold. I mean, that's not how we think in this country. I mean, we're trying to see if we can get composite stuff now instead of going from steel and aluminum to different other things. And uh, But, you know, here he is. Eh, let's make it out of gold. We got a bunch of gold around here. You know, it's just all over the place. Get that silver. The silver is just like gravel. Get it out of here. You know, or, you know they just had gold. And so he's very wealthy. That's a strength in that he can, he's in command. You got money. You can do stuff which is good, and it can be bad. So it depends on one's nature. So what else is another strength? The second strength I see that we read was his matchless throne. Okay, his matchless throne. Look at this, verse 18. He made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. I mean, I don't have any pictures of this. I started looking up pictures. I'm like, eh, eh, eh. I'm not going to put those up. So, but he, can you imagine this, ma- this throne that's all ivory? Now, that's a precious substance from an animal, of course. and has to be milled out and made in different shapes and brought together, then coated with the best of gold. And then he has these steps going up to his throne, like this, and six steps. And, and as you're walking up to a stone, oh, I gotta go meet King Solomon or come up to him. Whoa, these lions right here, are they gonna move? You know, he had these lions on each side. And so he had this matchless throne. It displays his strength that he is... In, I mean, it's an expression of his, of his wealth, but it's also an expression of his, the power when he goes to say something. You know, a throne is a statement. And so he has this matchless throne that shows, that shows his strength. Another point of, of his strength is verse 12 uh, to, 13, to 23. All of his marvelous uh, household items. All right, his marvelous household items. And again, it's, a lot of these are just expressions of wealth. Look what he look at this. No Tupperware, no china. You know, no glass. Verse twenty one. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. Didn't who used to? Didn't there used to be like Tupperware parties in the seventies and eighties? My mom, did you ever do that, mom? Tupperware party like once. She's like, I regret that. <laughs> the ladies would have these Tupperware parties, you know, and they try to get ladies all excited about it and sell it, and then they can become sellers of it and all that. And, you know, this is, this is, you couldn't have done this right here. King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. Yeah, give me the gold goblet over there. You know, pass that over here. And they're drinking out of these gold cups and have gold plates and all their vessels, forks. Can you imagine a gold fork? You're eating, you're saying, ah, I'll bite on that. See if it's real, you know. And all, the, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. It is, in other words, it was like, we have all this stuff in my house, and it is the best of the best of the best, and when, even when we go to make it, eh, nobody, that's all gold. It was nothing. Wow. Whereas some people are... Some people will take, you know, I don't know, with the weight of maybe a typical cup, let's just say half a pound, eight ounces or something, I don't know, of a gold cup. Uh, people will go on journeys miles and miles and miles and dig into something to find that much for a couple of months type of thing. And he's like, ah, eh, yeah, we got a few of those. Whew, wow. This man had these, this, this wealth of strength and his throne... It's decorated in his house by these certain uh, elaborate vessels. And then look at some of the pets. I'm assuming some of these are around the house here. Verse 22, the king had at sea a navy of Tarsus with the navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarsus bringing gold and silver, ivory, and apes and peacocks. Now, I don't know. They might have had to have been in another part of the house where you can't hear them you know, squawking all the time. But you got peacocks. Wow, peacocks, are kind of neat looking. You know, they've got the various colors. And then an ape, you know, they must have had them caged in and so on. Amazing. I don't think you can just go up and snatch an ape just quite easily. But they, somebody was going deep into the jungle somewhere and getting that. He exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and wisdom. Another, the third component expression, we can call it, of his strength. Here's a third expression of his strength is his magnetic attraction, magnetic attraction internationally. You know, um, people come from around the world to see the Grand Canyon, right? That's what they do. People come from around the world to go to a Disneyland or Disney World or SeaWorld. And um, people actually come from around the world just to see the United States itself. Um, People were coming from around the world to see him. He was an international attraction. He was magnetic in that sense. Verse 24, all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and garments and armor, and spices, horses, and mules, a rate year by year. So that's adding to his wealth, just raking in from the tourists. Coming in. What else is a picture of his strength? An expression. I'll call this next point his military flex. <laughs> Look at verse 26. It's describing a kind of a military posture. It says Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen. Whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. That probably means that's just at Jerusalem. He had he was loaded with the the chariots. Of course, would be like for transportation, but it's also for maneuvering in battle. I mean, kind of this is his version of like an F-16 type thing. I don't know if that's current. That's more like an 80s plane, isn't it? But this is like his jets. He had a bunch of them, and he had qualified pilots for these. In this case, chariots. They can travel, but they can also maneuver in battle. Um, now, we're going to look at some conflict to some extent in chapter 11. But for the most part, Solomon was a man of peace. God says, I'm going to give you peace. He, he presided over, for the most part, a peaceful 40-year administration. So all this is just going, flexing i remember being a you know born in the 70s and remembering a lot of news in the 80s i felt like our president reagan at the time like nobody's gonna beat us because he was all over the, he was like you know we have uh, nuclear weapons and we have and uh you know I, I remember seeing different expressions of our air force and marines i'm thinking whoa i think we're just flexing we're flexing on the russians you know at the time and here's here's the solomon he has he has the, 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 the military, and the, he also has, I would call it, the, um, the uh, diplomacy that would help you avoid some war and the relationship that would help you avoid war. That in and of itself is like a military strength. Listen, some countries have strength because they have, a, they can, they have the leverage of an economy. We do. Unfortunately, our leverage is we're massive, gluttonous consumers. And so people depend on us keep picking out and overbuying. And so the, the statement is, when goods and services cross borders, troops are less likely to. And so you see that with Solomon. Verse 28, Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn, and the king's merchants received the yarn at a price. And I'm sure it helped because he had Pharaoh's daughter for one of his wives. But you see, when there's this, hey, business relationship, that is a form of, you know, that's a form of leverage that could help you avoid a military conflict. So here's Solomon, his, his massive wealth, his matchless throne, his marvelous household, magnetic attractions, military flex. But here the Bible intentionally kind of turns the corner showing us this with, these, with this first word of chapter 11, verse 1, but... So it's connecting. It's It's like, this is good. Look at this. This is amazing. This is matchless. This is unparalleled. This is uh, unprecedented. But he collected a lot of things, but he is collecting the wrong thing this time. Here's his one expression of weakness that's at least the dominant one here. But Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon, clave unto these in love. This is one of those things where you're going, boy, I wish I didn't see this chapter for Solomon. It would have been a great story, yeah. right? Would have been a really, it is still a great story. But here he is amassing wealth. I mean, God blessed him with that. God said, "You, because you've asked for the wisdom, I'm going to grant you this also, this wealth. And, but he, he gets the wealth. And, and in, in fact, it even says, you could read about him in Ecclesiastes. He's just started exploring everything. He's like, you know what? I want to know everything about everything. He explored knowledge his of knowing stuff. And he actually said, it's, eh, so I got 10, ten other degrees. Eh. That's kind of what he says in Ecclesiastes. It's because it's from a worldly satisfaction sense, under the sun. But anyways, he he has wealth, and he had building projects. I built me this. I built me that. I had orchards and... in. Fountains, likely, and all these things, and and then he built, uh, and then he tried all kinds of things to eat and drink, and and all kinds of stuff, and then he collected women. Collected, Zidonian women, Hittite women, Edomite women, Ammonites, Moabites, the daughter of Pharaoh, many strange women. Uh, Nehemiah says something about this. Let's look at what Nehemiah says, in, the last chapter, I believe it is. 13, Nehemiah 13. Now, Nehemiah, I love this story. He, at the beginning of the book, is not in his country. Nehemiah was crying to go back. And he gets to go back and he has the favor of God on him through his boss, a secular king, to help fund him being back in Jerusalem and building a wall. And Nehemiah was excited about it. They built a wall and I think it was Ezra or somebody later did the... uh, rebuilt some aspects of worship but nehemiah is back in jerusalem the walls built they're like we're gonna rebuild our our city why do you have to rebuild it in the first place well well because we for years god gave us a clear law and it was just it was uh, uh, verified by so many miracles and things and he gave us a clear law of how to run our country how to run our worship and uh, how and what to do as a nation and how to express his glory to the Gentiles and we just started neglecting it we neglected his law in our morals we neglected his law in our family we neglected his law in our worship started worshiping other gods we neglected the Sabbath we neglected the the uh, uh, the the seventh year Sabbath they started neglecting all that so finally God finally God says alright I told you it's a blessing if you obey and it'll be a curse if you disobey and so God caused this captivity of them to go in captivity into babylon, babylon. and so um, here nehemiah gets to go back into jerusalem after being there for a certain amount of time going back and rebuilding and as they're rebuilding people had, from people who were in exile come back to the home country yes we get to go back to israel you know a lot of people started going back to israel uh, 1948 the israel now became an official nation, but people are starting to go back. Jews from around the world were starting to go back there in that time, and then especially since 1948. And even now, Jews are trying to go back there in spite of the fact that it's hostile. Well, people are coming back to Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. And and so Nehemiah's like all happy. It's kind of like we're rebuilding. Things are going good. And so look what Nehemiah notices uh, what's happening as, as things are kind of being reset. Chapter 13, verse 23, In those days... I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each each people. Now this gets a little tough here. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not Give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these? Yet among many masons was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin." Shall we hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? So basically, what happened is Nehemiah's kind of there's a first wave of people that have come back, and Nehemiah's building the wall, and he's like, all right, we're getting settled back in our town, and after to being in an exile from being punished by God, and he notices that there, there's already some uh, mixed marriages. And he's, and he's really upset. Why did this happen? And then he says, God says, don't give your daughters to their sons of the pagans or your sons to their daughters of the, of the godless pagans because God says, surely they're going to win you over. You're not going to win them over. That's what he says. That's what he says in the Old Testament. If you give your son a believing Israeli and say he can marry this Moabite that has no, not like a Ruth, But a Moabite that's like worshiping whatever, she's going to win on that deal. She's going to win on where they go to church or go to church at all. And if you give your daughter over to this other, you know, certain uh, Zidonian who worships some other thing, he's going to win her over. She's not going to win him over. Do not do that. And so Nehemiah notices some of the men that have done that because he sees the kids. He says, we can't do this. I mean, he's getting pulling hair and stuff like that, you know, and plucking beards and, and stuff like that. And he said, "No, look, do you think you're better than Solomon?" Solomon was a man who was strong. He was attractive to nations. He had a lot of wealth. Didn't even him, who's wise and wealthy and perceptive and discerning, even him, what happened? Did outlandish women rust his character? That's what he's saying. And he's basically saying, do you think you're better than Solomon? Don't do it. And he's also saying, this is how we, this is why we went, one of the reasons why we were in Babylon so many years and we're coming back trying to rebuild. This is why there's so much rubble around here we still got to clean up because God punished us for compromising our marriage choices, among other things. That's what he said. The Bible tells us to be equally yoked, not unequally yoked. How can two walk together except they be agreed? You know, nobody's 100% compatible. You find a Christian, uh, two Christians that are man and wife, of course, and they're not going to be 100% compatible because, you know, we both have sin natures. But as far as on the idea of faith and who's the Lord of this, of our life, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and who are we looking to? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and do we have a genuine conversion? You've got to have those things in a marriage. But here's Solomon. He's just like, man, I'm just collecting them. And you would think, okay, so let's go back to 1 Kings 11. Again, we talked about how powerful this guy was. Man, he's got wealth. He's got a throne. He can call the shots on things, right? Mm. Except when the cute little Moabite's wife comes in. Honey, I sure would like to have a temple to the goddess, god Ashdod. I don't know what these are. I mean, she's, she's some one of his wives. He's like, what's her name? You know, I don't know what it is. He, he, I mean, they're coming in. And the Bible says, let's just look at this. Verse 3, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, he, they did exactly what God, this will happen. They'll turn away your heart. And his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after their gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. That is, he didn't, David fell and tripped. You know, he was a good man that fell and wasn't utterly cast down. He fell and tripped and got back up, fell and tripped, got back up. Solomon went through and fell and tripped and really didn't get back up in that sense. He didn't, wasn't perfect, didn't finish out well. He wasn't perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon, wow, I can't, this is almost unbelievable. He built the most glorious Jewish temple that we've ever known. But here he is. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then, verse 7, then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, that's the one we know where they offered babies in sacrifice, hoping that they'd make them profitable. And for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So, I mean, he's collected these wives and they, they as he got older, they started pulling the strings and pushing the buttons and he was funding these things. Wow. So... It's kind of like this. Let's just look at it, kind of bring it to where we're at. We could all kind of look at our own lives and say, I do have some strengths. I think I do. You know, we can start thinking of some of our strengths. Maybe it's not like exactly like Solomon, like wealth and things like that. Maybe it's that you've been a Christian a long time. You know, a lot of Bible. That's a strength. Maybe you're, you know, been faithful in certain ways to the Lord and serve God, and that's a strength. Maybe you're You're pretty perceptive of people, know how to discern personality types. That's a strength. Maybe you're um, savvy in business, savvy in a trade. That's a strength. Um, Maybe you're likable. Maybe you're good at selling things. That's a strength. But I'm realizing that you can collect a lot of strengths like this and have sometimes one particular weakness that you keep putting up with and you keep letting fester, and it can take down the blessing of those other strengths. And, you know, it's like these, we used to have a tree right next to this shed. It was another mulberry tree, and it just looked a little odd, you know. It's always looked odd, quite frankly, but when we finally, you know, there was some dead parts to it. When we finally cut it down, and cut that thing down. And so let's say if the, the trunk was like this, about nearly half of the inside was somewhat hollow and moist and wet and just mushy. It was something was rotting it, and eventually it was going to come down. That's why we did it. We wanted to preempt it because we have our building, and there's, a, there's a, one of our power lines coming in there. Solomon had this in him. It's this weakness. He was, so his thing is misconduct with women. He had a military flex, he had a massive wealth, but he had the misconduct in his case with women. Now, this is very, this, can, this resonates probably most with guys because women can be our weakness, you know? And uh, the appeal of women, of, you should be, a lot, there should just be one appeal of one woman and we contain ourselves that way, of our spouse. Just like you would contain a fire to a fireplace. Fire's good, it's a wonderful thing, it needs to be contained, right? It does. If it's not contained, you got massive problems and destructive things, and uh, things get out of control. Same thing with the, the, uh, the romantic attraction. Contain it to one person for life. It's called marriage. And Solomon chose not to do that. He loved many strange women. He didn't just love many women, but many strange women. And uh, God told, we could look at some scriptures where God told the king, don't multiply yourselves wives. He did that, plus he multiplied even the wrong kind of wives. And so, a couple things. What is your however in your life? What is the but? You have this going for you, you got that going for you, you got that going for you, you got that going for you, but this is something that you've been collecting. Is there something like that for you? Right, let's ask ourselves, is there a however for me that's starting to collect? Some people, there's a, it could be, you know, it, it's, you're, you're, this is this is way too common of a problem. But pornography with men is a massive problem, all over the place, and and it's almost like cavities developing, but for the mind, it's just festering and it's got to be dealt with. This guy has this thing going for him. He's got this, you know. Maybe he's got a good marriage. He's got good. He's got kids and he's got a decent job. But man, he has got this. He is he is chained to pornography. Boy, that needs to be addressed as soon as possible by the grace of God, to be delivered of that. Some people, they, unfortunately, as I'm looking at this message, I'm like, oh man, I just, I don't want to spend all the rest of the time telling illustrations of other pastors or Christian leaders that would be a Solomon in this sense. I'm like, oh man, we could spend the rest of our time doing that. And it can be depressing. But there's been Solomon types like that. Ravi Zacharias was the last one who's now dead. He's got many things. He was a great defender of the faith, and he was a uh, wrote books and and uh he's of uh indian descent i believe and he was just he was very um um he was very sharp when he died and i think within a year started things started coming out about him they're going oh my goodness this isn't this isn't good you know and um so what is the but in my life what is the however have these strengths however there's there's some theft I have this thing, but, you know, I got this growing pride that, that, that I exercise or I'm just a bully with people when nobody else sees. There's a pastor, there's a pastor right now in the valley. He was well-known. I don't like to just say a bunch of people's names flippantly. He was well-known in another state. He, he led in a movement not quite in our group, kind of more of a new evangelical. He was very influential in a new evangelical church movement out in another state out west here. And um, he didn't have an immoral thing happen to him. But man, he was, they just, it came to the surface that he was basically a big bully to people who worked under him. And he was just a jerk. He was good at the pulpit and all this other stuff, but he was, behind the scenes, he was just a jerk. He'd written some books, he'd done some cool things and led in this church planning movement. And they just, the elders, the way their structure was, they just basically confronted him and fired him. And he came here to start a church now in another part of the valley. And I thought, Man, that's, you know, I am like thinking, I don't want any, anything growing in my life like that for the sake of my own, number one, my own marriage and my own family. And then down the line to be a pastor. This is important. It's honoring, but the most important thing is the first relationships God's given me. So do you have one of those in your life? Some people, it's, you know, I knew a guy, he... I knew a guy. He was a good pastor. He was a good person. He did some good things, and I didn't. Find, and then things just fell apart for him. And I found out later on he loved to gamble. I'm like, what is this guy gambling for? He wasn't far from one of these Native American casino, casinos, and he loved to go visit there and gamble. And I'm like, and I don't know if because he was making up for a, trying to make up for a lack of income. And I thought, oh man. just got to think, What is there something rusting that I need to actually take care of? Is so there some corrosion that I need to take care of? They can overwhelm the otherwise blessings and strengths that you might could list. Overwhelm it. Besides, there's a couple things as we see this five strengths and one weakness. We want to take care of, we're going to always have weaknesses. But when you start just tolerating it over time, and isn't it amazing how that this is, this is almost a fearful thing to me too, it's like, did you realize when you read this chapter, God waited to start dealing with him. It was later. So that don't ever think, well, I'm doing okay, and nothing bad's happening to me. I'm this, I'm that, I'm porn or theft or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big jerk or whatever. Certain things that you're developing, the but in the background in your life, the however side of your character and you're like, well, God's not doing anything to me, so it must be okay. Don't do that. I, I, that's even more fearful. God didn't do anything right away. Appears to Solomon, like, waits later, and then he's like, all right, we're going to start sending systematically. Verse nine says, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned, and the Lord raised up an adversary. Verse fourteen, Hadad. Hey, he raised up another adversary. Verse twenty-three, Rezon. He raised up another adversary, Jeroboam, and it was like God just kind of waited. Whoa. So don't think, well, I'm okay because God's not doing anything to me. I've still got a good paycheck and everybody thinks I'm cool. Don't do that. So here's the, here's kind of the main truth. It is not, it is so simplistic, but let's just get it up here. The main truth is this that we should that we should think about is this. May simple obedience be our greatest strength. Simple obedience. Hey, <laughs> whatever you say, God, I'll do it. Can you imagine Solomon? Solomon's used a bunch of gold. All these crazy animals at his house that nobody else had—peacocks and apes and stuff—and gold-plated this and gold-plated that. He's got it all. He's got it all. He's got it all. And God blessed him with those things, and he could say this and say that and answer this question. He had all kinds of stuff. God gave him that. God gave him that. And um, he's—he can—you uh, um, know—he was developing this project over here in his house in the temple. His. All kinds of stuff like that, and 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 he and he could, and God basically gave him the desire of his heart in that sense. But what he needed to do in all those complexities and all the lavishness, he needed to be a minimalist in this one area, and obey God. Ah, well, yeah, I know everyone, I know these ladies like me. I know they're all coming around from around the world. I'm seeing all sorts of ladies, but I'm going to be a minimalist. I'm going to obey guidance. Simple obedience on this one thing—just got one wife. That's it. I'm going to obey God in that simple thing. A man who has so much might had to contain, should have had to contain himself and say, "That's all we got on this one." Simple obedience. Let's look at quickly some scriptures. Exodus tells the Israelites that if they were to follow the Lord and the angel that was with him in the wilderness, be a simple result here. Exodus twenty-three twenty-two. It says there that the Lord would send His angel to keep them in the way as they're going in the wilderness. And the Lord says, Exodus 23, um, 22, but if thou shalt indeed obey His voice and do all that I speak, let I'll be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. Isn't that neat? Israel would say, hey, God says, look, just do whatever I say. I'm sending my angel there to guide you. Just do what He says. And if you do what He says... When I see your enemies coming, I'm going to be like, hey, I'm the enemy. And I'll just make it pretty simple. I'll be an enemy to your enemies. And when I see your adversaries coming on you, I'll just step up like, no, no, I got this. You've been obeying my angel here, my messenger. And God says, I'll be an enemy to thine enemies and an adversary to thine adversary." I feel like I sense that even if you are persecuted or die for the faith, the safest way to die is die in obedience. The safest way and the best way to suffer is suffer in a state of obeying God. The the best way to have some kind of even injustice come on you is in the context of obeying God. That's a safe place to be. So may simple obedience be our strength. When my dad and I ran a shop, we would would get guys that would work for us occasionally, sometimes during the summer just for a few months. And the guys we wanted best usually were the guys that knew the least but would do everything you said. Those that, that's that's who's running our shop now that we sold the Sandoval family they were the best because they came didn't know anything they'll do whatever you say that worked out pretty good for them they probably tripled the size of the business and the income from what our dad and I had my dad and I had but when we had guys who were know-it-alls from Evet and different things like that they wanted to tell us what don't no, look I know you knew some things but we're gonna do it our way it just didn't work it didn't matter what wealth of knowledge they had or resume they had or tools they brought with them. I didn't care if they just didn't do what, I, what we said. But when they did what we said and stayed with us, it went well with both of us. And the same thing with our life is like, I just need to learn to simply obey God in the little things He says. Okay, uh, other scriptures, <laughs> remember when Saul does this lavish, um, um, you know, worship, this lavish sacrifice and and, he, and, uh, and, and Samuel says, look, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings as in obeying his voice? Behold, to obey is better than the fat of rams. And to hearken, he says, uh, obedience is better than sacrifice, he says. Um, what does it say in Acts 5.22? The apostles were coming and they had preaching and teaching and they said, you need to stop doing it. And the apostle says, we ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to have that same attitude. I'm going to obey God rather than all the trends of man. I'm going to obey God rather than one man or person who's putting pressure on me. I ought to obey God rather than man, even if other Christians are caving into man. I ought to obey God rather than man. Simple obedience ought to be our strength. And if if you don't get the attention like a Solomon, who cares? That's how it needs to be my strength and your strength. Um, And then 1 Corinthians 10.5 goes even deeper. 2 Corinthians 10.5, where it says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Even my thoughts, my simple thoughts need to obey Jesus. Sometimes we think, it doesn't matter what I'm thinking, as long as everybody sees that I'm doing the right thing. No, it says you better chase down your thoughts and say, get back over here and obey Jesus, like you're playing capture the flag. Capture him, get down over here and over and obey Jesus. Or get out of here altogether. You know? And so Solomon did a lot of good things, but he decided he was going to disobey profusely on this one thing, and it wasn't good. In our case, I know that there's a place of repentance that God could give us. Steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, as we heard that in instrumental. And he delighteth in his way, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. So, back at the text here, Solomon loved many strange women. What we need to say is we want to have simple obedience to be our greatest strength. It was Jesus' strength in Philippians 2. Jesus' strength, Christ's obedience was at times humble, shows right here in Philippians, His obedience was painful at times, especially the cross, in many, many, many ways, but it was rewarded, because that's how it describes it. Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself. So I need to have that mind, humble myself just to do simple obedience, and even if I live in obscurity, and take upon me the form of a servant, and be obedient even unto the death of the cross, is what Jesus, and so God highly exalted him, he rewarded him. And so we need to stop looking at the things that we could um, just feed ourselves with if it's something that's disobedient to God because it could end up being something that undoes your strengths in the first place. Simple obedience.